0: Welcome to another of the Macbeth monologues, and in this podcast, we're going to explore how Shakespeare presents the witches. Some say that Macbeth's downfall is because he was too naive, too fickle, and too ambitious. He believed in the witches unwittingly submitting to their manipulation of him through riddles and prophecies. To a Jacobean audience, in other words, an audience at the time of King James I, We have to remember that many people firmly believed in witchcraft. Witches were seen as the workforce of the devil, in a time when people firmly believed in the existence of Satan and the very real possibility of going to a fiery hell after death if their lives had not been lived well enough. Witches, to them, were terrifying. King James was obsessed with witches. He even wrote a book on them called Demonology, and he was personally involved in the interrogation of some so-called witches. It's no surprise really that Shakespeare, a man who had written plays for the mighty Queen Elizabeth, created a play about witches for a man who was fixated with witches. It's no surprise that since the new King of England, King James, was already King of Scotland, that the play is set in Scotland. And it's no surprise that Shakespeare's bloodiest play is about kings and their future. When the play is intended for a new line of kings, the Stuarts, keen to show off their powerful ancestry and their right to the throne. So onto the action itself. In the very first scene in Macbeth, set in a storm of thunder and lightning in a blustery place near the battleground, Shakespeare introduces the witches He's already elevated their importance as key characters in the play by making them the very first ones we meet. The message to the audience is that these are highly significant in the play. They seem like they've just ended a conversation and are making arrangements for the next gathering when the First Witch asks, when shall we three meet again? And we don't know what they've been up to yet, but they know about the battle between the Scots and the Norwegians, the Hurly-Burly, And it's clear that they're working out how to meet up with the Thane of Glam's, Macbeth. These unearthly beings can disrupt the very elements themselves, causing the weather to be fair and foul with its fog and filthy air. And this is where Shakespeare wants them to be. He wants us to associate the witches with contaminating the very air around them. They are messengers of the devil after all. Note as well that Shakespeare refers to suspicions and superstitions of the day, as the first witch has grey a cat, and the second witch has paddock, a toad. Now witches were thought to have familiars, usually some kind of animal that acted as a devilish servant, and so the stereotypical image of the malevolent witch is complete. Shakespeare's done a good job, and James would be very proud. We next see the witches in Act 1, Scene 3. Now note, there is more thunder, and we are treated to more of Shakespeare's pathetic fallacy when the weather really does reflect the mood on this blasted heath. It's a windswept moorland. The first witch greets the second witch in an affectionate way, asking, where has thou been, sister? And we're meant to be shocked with a violent but casual response of killing swine and their pigs. They support one another. And the third witch asks where, which one has been again calling her sister? They're a tight, united group. Perhaps not real sisters, but a family in league with darkness, as far as Shakespeare goes. Now, despite the friendly greetings, which one, who tends to be more vocal than the others, relates the story of the sailor's wife who refused to give her any chestnuts. Her first instinct is to call the woman a rump-fed ronion, childish name-calling to say she's fat. But the tale takes a more sinister turn as which one goes on to say that this woman's husband has sailed to Aleppo in Syria on a ship called the Tiger, in fact, is the captain of this ship. Her horrible imagery of being like a rat in a tail increases the unease as we learn that she wants revenge, declaring, I'll do and I'll do and I'll do, Something shocking to this innocent man, who's had nothing to do with what his wife was involved in. The first witch thanks her sisters for their offers of winds to help wreck the ship, and she's very polite to them, saying, thou art kind. It's a an odd kind of honour, an honour of treachery. These witches take normal human values of kindness and unkindness, good and bad, and distort them. There's obviously nothing kind about creating a wind to shipwreck someone. And as expected, which One elaborates her plans. She intends to ravage all of the sailors' ports and then deprive him of sleep when sleep shall neither night nor day hang upon his lid. It feels a bit like a dummy run of what'll happen to Macbeth and indeed Lady Macbeth as he can't sleep once the murders start. This witch delights in the fact that she has the powers to make this unfortunate man live a man forbid. In other words, that he will have a terrible time. Now on a roll, which one proudly and again almost childishly says, look what I have, to the others. And the second witch is super excited answering, show me, show me. More like an excitable child than a servant of the devil. Of course, what witch number one has to show off, isn't a lovely toy or a little game, but it's a grisly souvenir, a pilot's thumb, the thumb of a sailor taken from a shipwreck. So this witch has got previous form. It's Shakespeare's way of showing us that she is powerful and she is deadly, and that we need to take her powers seriously. And for many in that Jacobean audience, they would. The witches join forces in one of their chants talking about going about but doing things thrice to thine and thrice to mine. Thrice means three times and this number three is significant in our play generally. Three witches, three prophecies, three apparitions, three kings, three murderers to name a few but it's also important with regard to the witches themselves. In Christian beliefs the most sacred Three is the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit. This little trio of witches is a most unholy trinity and perhaps Jacobean audiences were being asked to consider the very antithesis, the opposite, of goodness in pure evil itself. In addition, there is a school of thought that also suggests that whatever is done in life, good or bad, will have three times its impact. And so, we finally meet Macbeth, fresh from defeating the Norwegians. He declares that, so foul and fair a day I have not seen, and we are aghast. He used the very words uttered by the witches in the very first scene of the play, As Miss Archer also discusses in her podcast on the supernatural, Shakespeare's created an immediate connection between Macbeth and the witches that is both intriguing and alarming. Banquo gives a less than complimentary description of the witches. They are so wild and withered in what they're wearing, he says. He fires out a volley of questions because he's so startled. He says, live you, and asks do they understand him? They look ugly, he says, with choppy fingers and skinny lips. And whilst looking like women, they are bearded. The point being that witches were seen as aberrations, abnormal creatures who apparently defied physical norms of the time. And remember, this is in an age way before any LGBTQ considerations. So the stereotype of a witch being female... An ugly female at that, complete with diabolical familiars and incantations, is complete. The famous greeting of All Hail Macbeth, Thane of Glam's, Thane of Cordor, and Thou shalt be hereaf- king hereafter, comes at this point. The witches are once again orderly and polite, allowing themselves one line of the greeting each. Shakespeare uses Banquo to tell us that Macbeth is astounded at this news, saying that he is wrapped with all, but he's interested himself to know what will happen to him, asking with beautiful imagery, if you can look into the seeds of time and say which will grow and which will not, speak to me, who neither beg nor fear your favour. He wants to know, but he's not desperate. Politely sharing a three-tiered response between them again, The witches tell Banquo that he is lesser than Macbeth and greater. He is not so happy, yet much happier. And most interesting of all, thou shalt get kings, though thou be none. They speak in riddles and certainly with the first two responses, but the third is very clear and unequivocal. Banquo's children and descendants will be kings. There is nothing ambiguous about that. Macbeth is instantly fixated and demands that the witches stay and tell him more. But the witches ignore him. They are the powers of darkness after all and they simply vanish. He's so frustrated and declares would they had stayed. Now, just because the witches have gone off stage, don't be fooled into thinking you don't need to talk about them. Their influence permeates everything, even in their absence. And this is the point of the witches. Through Macbeth's actions, we see the witches' intentions. So Macbeth and Banquo chew over what the witches said, knowing it sounds like madness and that they might have eaten on some insane route that takes reason prisoner. In the blink of an eye, Ross duly arrives and shares the news that Macbeth is to be Thane of Cawdor after the existing Thane is captured and charged with treason. It's Banquo who asks what, can the devil speak true? He associates what's been said with dark forces already. As for Macbeth, he knows this can be the case as the Thane of Cawdor is still alive as far as he knows but then... Unlike Banquo, he already allows himself to, d- to dream about the biggest and the best prize, that's kingship, when he says, Glam's and Thane of Cordor, the greatest is behind, meaning the greatest is the kingship and that's the one he wants. Banquo senses his friend's excitement with it and warns him, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles to betray us. In deepest consequence. But it's no good Macbeth is already hooked in the space of a few minutes and because of one of the witches greetings materializing into reality being Thane of Cordo. It's a happy prologue to the swelling act of the Imperial theme and the witches have him just like that and it sounds like he's expecting the crown to come his way next. Maybe that'd be okay if he just waited for it to happen, but the witches are already meddling with his moral fibre as he accepts that he's already thinking of a horrid image that does unfix his hair. And these horrible imaginings are his emerging thoughts on killing the king, even now, just minutes after seeing the witches. It's hard to think that a man who is the Scottish hero of the battle against the Norwegians would be so easily turned to murder and treason. And we're massively relieved when when we hear Macbeth dismiss these thoughts, saying, if chance will have me king, then chance may crown me without my stir. The next time we hear of the witches is in Macbeth's letter to his dearest partner in greatness, Lady M, when he outlines events with the Weird Sisters. Macbeth admits to having burned in desire to know more, but asks Lady Macbeth just to keep all of this in mind for now. It is absolutely worth noting that Macbeth does tell Lady M in the letter that greatness is promised to her. He has taken the third witch's greeting as an absolute and definite outcome. There is no doubt in his mind that he will become king and that Lady M will become queen. So, of course, Lady Macbeth believes him. Though she doesn't simply wait for it to happen, but decides to lead on the plot to kill the saintly and much-loved king. And in words that are similar to those spoken by the witches, she greets Macbeth on his arrival at the castle with Great Glam's worthy Cawdor, greater than both, by the all hail hereafter and this should shake us as much as the words that Macbeth uses when we first meet him. She too has an imperceptible connection to dark forces, more than confirmed when she calls upon new spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, to fill her full of direst cruelty, which seems to be fulfilled as Lady Macbeth works on her husband to rid themselves of the Scottish King. (laughs) During an especially dark night, Banquo tells Macbeth that he dreamt last night of the weird sisters, and this pathetic fallacy frames the mini-exchange and generates a sense of unease as we know what is likely to happen soon. In response, Macbeth lies. He simply replies, I think not of them, when in fact we all know that he spent his entire time grappling with the enormity of his potential regicide. And it's this that triggers the infamous dagger soliloquy, in which our of Cordo's mind is beginning to unravel. Here, Macbeth talks about how witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offering. It's the darkest time of night, and witches are busy offering terrible offerings to their goddess, Hecate. It's not the only evil activity going on during this terrible and rough night. And so the life of poor King Duncan is brutally snuffed out by Macbeth. Once Malcolm has fled to England, Macbeth is the natural candidate for the throne as the bravest warrior in the land. But by the time we get to Act 3, Banquo is suspicious. He acknowledges that Macbeth has it all now. Cordor, Glam's, all, as the Weird Women promised reflecting on the witch's initial greeting and commenting to himself that he fears he played most foully for it. And there's that word foul again, as he wonders about Macbeth's part in Duncan's murder. Yet Banquo is not immune to daydreaming about power and suggests that the witch's greetings would be remarkable things that would shine if they were to come true for him, that he should be the root and father of many kings. Now this is a bit unexpected from Banquo and we're not used to seeing this side of Macbeth's best friend. Well, that's all very well, but Macbeth's fears in Banquo stick deep. As prophet-like, they, the witches, hailed him father to a line of kings. But he then moans that upon my head they placed a fruitless crown. Macbeth is beginning to realise they'll have no legacy No children to inherit his royal crown and no mighty royal dynasty. His concern grows and grows as Macbeth rambles further and repeats his fears that the seeds of Banquo might become kings of Scotland. At this point I'm reminded of the words that Banquo uses when he asks the witches to look into the seeds of time and once again Shakespeare is using other characters' words against them. And such is his increasing paranoia that he engages two assassins to sweep Banquo from his sight and make sure that Fleance, his son, must embrace the fate of that dark hour. Macbeth believes that getting rid of Fleance will interrupt the possibility of the witches' greetings coming true in a desperately disturbing bid to outdo the powers of the witches. Keeping the details of his plans back from his wife, Macbeth assures her that before this the bat has flown and before Black Hecate summons a terrible deed will be done that night. His imagery is disturbing. Why couldn't he say before the sun rises or before a new day? Well Macbeth is aligned to the witches now. he views everything through the lens of the witches and every word he speaks is influenced by them. Even the imagery he uses. And so it is that Two hired hitmen, joined by a third for good luck, of course, because three is such a significant number, remember, they set about their job of murdering Banquo. And once Banquo is horribly dispatched and safe in a ditch with 20 gashes in his head, and once the ghost of Macbeth's former best friend and confidant terrifies him to his very core at the coronation banquet, Macbeth resolves to go and see the Weird Sisters the very next day. And all of this horror, King Duncan's savage regicide, the slaughter of the two innocent guards, the assassination of Macbeth's virtuous and noble best friend Banquo, and the attempted murder of his child Fleance, has all come about because of those three simple lines in Act One, Scene One. All hail Macbeth, Thane of Glams, Thane of Cawdor, and thou shalt be king hereafter. The witches have had a massive result for very little effort. I probably don't need to ask you what the weather's like when we then see the witches in Act 2, Scene 4. And you'll have guessed it, it's thundery. And where are we meeting? You've guessed right again. A bit of Heathland in the middle of nowhere. In Act 3, Scene 5, we meet Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft and boss of the three witches. She's not in a good mood. Now, if I were a member of the audience, I'd be terrified of that goddess of witchcraft anyway, and we're meant to be, but Shakespeare's made sure she's in a bad mood. She looks angrily, and she's summoned the three witches to meet her, so it's even more terrifying. Hegarty calls them saucy and overbold for trading and trafficking with Macbeth in riddles and affairs of death. In other words, she's not happy that they've been playing with him for their own entertainment and not without her knowledge. She calls herself the mistress of your charms, asserting her authority, but she also reminds us of how proud she is of her witchcraft, referring to the glory of our art. In a long speech, she calls Macbeth a wayward son, who is spiteful and wrathful, and reminds the witches that he loves for his own ends, not for you, and this is true. Macbeth is doing everything for himself. He is totally consumed now, and it's certainly not to please the witches, but himself. Hecate decides she wants to step things up a bit and draw on Macbeth to his confusion, where he will spurn fate and scorn death. Now this is interesting as just as Macbeth has decided to go and see the witches she knows he's on his way and he's waiting for her opportunity to do what she calls great business. Confusing Macbeth so badly that things will come to a fatal end. And Act 3, Scene 4 brings us to the notorious cauldron scene. Of course there's a storm, and of course we're witnessing the witches in a miserable place. They're in a cavern, though Hecate told us when we saw her last that it would be the pit of Asheron. Asheron is a mythological river that takes the dead to the underworld. So we're seeing the witches on their home turf here, in the dark and miserable netherworld on the way to hell. The witches are in mid-spell when we meet them, happily concocting a foul hell-broth, and we presume it's going to bring harm to someone and we can't help thinking that this is for Macbeth. We might imagine a charm to do good would be filled with pleasant ingredients, but this one contains poisoned entrails, a toad, an adder's fork-tongue. As each witch contributes to the cauldron's contents, the ingredients get increasingly more vile. Which 1 throws in the poisonous toad, Witch 2 brings the Eye of Newt and Blind Worm Sting, and then Witch 3 adds mythological elements such as the scale of dragon. But disturbingly, she even lobs in the mummified remains of one of her own, another Witch, and this is horrendous imagery. It gets infinitely worse with the liver of a Jew, the nose of a Turk, and a Tartar's lips. And from that, we get a very clear insight into the horrors of Jacobean racism. To them, their addition makes this potion more offensive and therefore more powerful. To a 21st century audience, this suggestion alone is outrageous. Shakespeare definitely would not be allowed to include this in his work today. And yes, we remember the double-double toil and trouble line, though it's not really this line that's most important, so avoid being pulled into talking about things that are too obvious. Hecate puts in her appearance and is thrilled with the work of the witches so far. Another example of distorted values. It's a hideous concoction, and yet she's delighted with it. Note that it's the second witch who senses the arrival of Macbeth when she announces by the pricking of my thumbs something wicked this way comes. Notice that she says something as if Macbeth is no longer a human being but instead some kind of unfeeling malevolent creature. Macbeth's greeting is aggressive calling them secret black and midnight hags. He asks what they're doing but they close ranks and cover up for one another, replying together a deed without a name. They're not going to tell him what they're up to. That would ruin the surprise. And actually, their deed is so bad that no name would do it justice. Macbeth insists that they tell him what he wants to know. Importantly, though, he doesn't even need to say what it is he wants to know, as which one tells him he doesn't need to. The powers of darkness already know. But Macbeth isn't happy with info just from the witches. No, that won't do for him. He wants a direct line to the witches' masters. And so the witches throw in some pig's blood to help summon up said masters. This new unknown power creates the famous series of three apparitions. Apparition number one a head with armour on, warning Macbeth to beware Macduff. Apparition number two, a bloody child that, de- that declares none of woman born shall harm Macbeth. And apparition number three, a child with a crown holding a tree that states, Macbeth shall never be vanquished until great Burnham Wood to high Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. And these three images lead Macbeth into a complete sense of, of security, just as Hecate intended, though they will ultimately become his downfall. But he's still not happy, and he demands to know whether Banquo's issue, his descendants, will ever reign in this kingdom. Once again, the witches join ranks and tell him to seek no more. But Macbeth isn't afraid of the witches and feels like he has the authority over them to get his way. This is a worrying turn of events for us, as Shakespeare has created a character who now has power over the forces of evil themselves. Macbeth gets his way, but he doesn't like what he sees, a display of eight kings with Banquo at the end of them. In other words, Banquo's descendants will be kings. And therefore, there was absolutely no reason to kill him. Which one then mischievously asks why he should look so amazed and suggests that they should all just try and cheer him up in a way that he is completely at odds with the gravity of the situation. And with distorted values once more, she calls Macbeth a great king and then vanishes. Macbeth knows they're up to no good, after all they are witches, who it was believed at the time were malicious and diabolical creatures. He says damned all of those who trust them, and he couldn't be more correct, put your faith in the witches and things are not going to end well. Except he does put his faith in the witches and these apparitions despite what he says and despite his instincts, and things of course don't end well. In a heartbeat, despite learning that Macduff is fled to England, he decides there and then murder his wife his babes and all unfortunate souls that trace him in the line there's no logical reason for this murder there is no political gain to rid himself of an enemy this is violence for violence sake maybe in a fit of jealousy having seen that he can't do anything about Banquo's family he decides to wipe out (laughs) Macduff's begin to go from bad to worse for Macbeth. Unsurprisingly Macduff swears revenge on him for the slaughter of his family making us realise that Macbeth should have good reason to beware Macduff and Malcolm Duncan's son also wants revenge. The English king, King Edward has agreed to support them in overcoming Macbeth by giving them thousands of troops And poor Lady Macbeth's mind is in tatters, sleepwalking away into oblivion. In Act 5, we see some of the nobles' preparations for battle, and we learn they will gather at Burnham Wood. And we can't help recalling the apparitions' comments about the wood coming to Dunsinane Hill. And when Caithness tells us that great Dunsinane he strongly fortifies, we realise that Dunsinane is Macbeth's current castle that is turning into a stronghold and he must therefore be fearful of some attack after all. Now we don't see the witches again but of course their influence powerfully filters through Act 5. Macbeth constantly reassures himself dismissing reports of gathering troops because until Burnham Wood removed to Dunsinane I cannot taint with fear. And he rambles through what the apparitions told him, rejecting the boy Malcolm as he was born of woman and therefore unable to harm him. We know though that Malcolm has also sworn to bring Macbeth down. And in this final act, we meet Macbeth's servant, Satan. Now whilst the witches are not on stage, there are some scholars who believe that Shakespeare has created this character very purposefully. Some pronounce his name Satan, some pronounce it Satan. If we do say Satan, it obviously sounds like another name for the devil, Satan himself. Now it's possible that we're meant to believe that Macbeth surrounds himself with the devil and even has control over evil powers as his moral character degenerates further. When the doctor gives him his report about being unable to cure the Queen, Macbeth rambles on again, insisting he finds something to cure both her and the country, ignoring the potential build-up of opposition forces outside. It's the Doctor who has to tell him and try and bring him to his senses, and yet again, Macbeth just replies that he won't be afraid until Burnham Forest comes to Dunsinane, using the apparition as comfort. Don't forget, the Doctor has no clue what Macbeth is going on about, He doesn't know about the witches, and he's out of there saying, "Were I from Dunsinane, away and clear, profits again should hardly draw me here. No amount of money in all the world will get the good doctor back there, as he leaves for good." Shakespeare cuts between scenes of military preparation and Macbeth's castle in the final act to increase tension as we head into the final phases of this play. And so. When we see Malcolm instruct all the soldiers to chop down branches from Burnham Wood as camouflage, we begin to get the picture about the significance of the wood. After all, it's a preposterous suggestion that a wood can move, but the witches were at their riddling best of course. The wood doesn't move, but the branches do, along with the soldiers as they advance on Macbeth's castle. The death of Lady Macbeth, announced by Satan, interestingly, obviously doesn't help Macbeth's state of mind and he quickly turns on the messenger who thinks he saw the wood begin to move. We know why the wood begins to move but Macbeth doesn't and it's a great example of dramatic irony. Macbeth is cornered and his response is simply to threaten the poor messenger with being hung alive in a tree. It's this realisation that the is coming true that then spurs Macbeth into regaining some of his warrior-like qualities, wanting to then fight like a real soldier. But also, he begins to accept death too, saying, at least we'll die with harness on our back. Slaying the young Eng- English lord, Seward, Macbeth casts him aside sneeringly because he was just born of woman. So he's still trying to find comfort from the prophecies despite really knowing that the game is up for him. And finally, Macbeth and Macduff come face to face. Macbeth fears Macduff, obviously because the apparition told him to in the clearest one of the three apparitions, saying to him, of all men, I have avoided thee. Despite being told to beware Macduff, Macbeth doesn't want to fight him, admitting that his soul is too much charged with blood of thine already. But even as they fight, Macbeth doesn't really want to believe that Macduff is the man to kill him, bragging still that he bears a charmed life and that it can't be taken by anyone not born of woman. Macduff responds with the words that Macbeth does not want to hear that Macduff was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. Born by a Caesarean section, Macduff was not delivered in the usual way, and so was not woman born. Macbeth has just met his nemesis, and incredibly gives up, stating, I'll not fight thee, because he knows he won't win, and that the juggling fiends, the witches, have totally deceived him. Spurred on by being called a coward by Macduff, he changes his mind refusing to kiss the ground before Malcolm's feet. He declares proudly now though Burnham would be come to Dunsinane and though being of no woman born, yet I will try to the last. We know what the outcome will be and so it is. Macduff kills and decapitates Macbeth. This great Virtuous man, who was once brave Macbeth, leaves an ugly legacy remembered only as a dead butcher. His reputation in tatters because of his ambition, his fickle nature and his trust in the powers of darkness and the three weird sisters. (laughs)